Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Uh, I worked the same night Billy was murdered. Across town. And I had talked to Billy on the phone about 5 o'clock. I think it was about 5. He had called me and asked me a question. Something about some paperwork. Wait, so you actually talked to Bill on that day while he was working? From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Bill Little's murder is a complicated story to tell. It's riddled with twists and turns, and the goal line is constantly moving. Every time you think that you have it all figured out, you find out that someone who seemed like a reliable witness is telling a different story than they did 28 years ago. And sometimes, you even figure out that one of the police officers who investigated the case is currently serving a 440-year prison sentence for serial rape. In June of 2008, Officer Jeff Pilo was convicted of raping four women and stalking a fifth. You may recall Pilo's name from last week. He was the first officer on the scene on the night that Bill Little was murdered. Pilo's serial raping is a long and tragic story, but the nutshell is this. For years, he used his authority as a police officer to stalk his victims, attack them in their homes, brutally rape them, and then used his knowledge of forensic crime scene analysis to leave every scene void of any evidence that could connect him to his crimes, even going so far as to having his victims bathe themselves for hours after his assault, washing away any evidence, and leaving the scene with their bedsheets and anything else that may contain his DNA. Pila was caught only because the one that got away, so to speak, caught him stalking outside of her house. He was discovered prowling around her house by a fellow Bloomington police officer. So what does this have to do with Bill's case? Well, probably nothing. But it's just another element of confusion. Can we really believe the statements from a man who spent years living a double life and brutally attacking innocent women? I don't know the answer to that. Just precisely why we need to conduct our own investigation. A new investigation. And more to the point... A proper investigation. Are you with me? Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. 
From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. A critical element of any investigation that is often overlooked is the study of what is known as victimology. Especially when you have a crime scene like this one. With little to no physical evidence, no eyewitnesses, and no obvious leads. When the FBI is faced with investigating cases like this, cases where forensics are of little use, they shift their focus onto human behavior. The concept, while it may seem complicated, is actually just a great big dose of common sense. Every victim is chosen by a particular offender, at a particular place, at a particular time, for a particular reason. If we can figure out that reason, why the victim was chosen at that place and time, it's like holding a mirror up to the offender. Every action is preceded by a decision. Sometimes it's conscious, and sometimes not. Nonetheless, there was a thought that led to the decision to take the life away of an innocent 18-year-old boy on Easter Sunday in 1991. We begin our investigation today by learning more about Bill Little. I want to know who he was, what he was like. Was he an aggressive person or more submissive? Would he be the kind of man who would fight a person over the contents of a cash register? Or would he just turn it over? In one circumstance, it's easy to see why he was shot, if he was fighting the offender over the money. But if he wasn't the kind of person who would fight over the cash, then there was another reason, another motivation for the offender to take his life so senselessly. How long did you know Bill? Pretty much my whole life up until the murder. Um, he went to school in Leroy with me, with, you know, in our class, um, except for Two years, I think it was, that he moved to Bloomington with his dad, and then he came back. Not having any interactions with him outside of school, to me, he always seemed kind of quiet, kind of to, kept to himself. I really didn't know him very well until our senior year. In our senior year, we had some art classes together, and... Our art room was big, long, eight-foot tables, and we sat across from each other the whole time. And he was hilarious. He was always yanking the teacher's chain, giving her a hard time. He was making everyone laugh, and he was very, very talented. He was a tremendous artist, and I really feel like he could have gone somewhere with that had he been allowed. I don't think he had one person who could say a mean thing about him or a bad thing about him. He was one of the good guys. After high school, I the summer after, I worked four jobs, saving money for college, and then I went off to college. I had come home for Easter, and later that week, my mother called me, and I did one of those teenage eye rolls. What does she want? I was just there. Um, and she told me about what happened. Valerie got to know Bill during his senior year of high school. She told me that he was kind of a class clown during art class, but he got away with the constant joking around because his work was amazing. He was a gifted artist. But Valerie also told me that I may be better served reaching out to some of Bill's guy friends, the guys that he spent most of his time with. 
Mike and Bill were very close throughout all of their high school years. I lived in Bloomington my whole life. And then uh, my freshman year of high school, my parents divorced. So we moved to Leroy, where I met Bill. Oh, man, he was he was larger than life, you know, and, you know, it was the 80s, you know, it was what, 1980, 1986 when I met him and he had that long hair that you see in the photo, you know, he, he loved his long, you know, it was the 80s. Everybody wanted to look like a heavy metal rocker, you know, uh, I couldn't grow long hair because my hair gets curly, so I'd have an afro. So I always I always wore the marine haircut, but, um, you know, he had, you know, just long hair he was really tall heart of gold i mean really good guy he uh you know he he enjoyed listening to music and he was always the peacemaker you know i mean when you get a bunch of high school boys together you know it's all about competing you know girls or what what do you and you know so the inevitable arguments would pop up and he was always quick to to be a peacemaker you know to hey guys you know come on let go and i always thought that was you know a rare breed in somebody, especially at that age, you know, you're most kids that age want to just go with the flow, but you know, he always stood up and tried to make peace with others. He had a great sense of humor. He could dish it out as well as he could take it. So yeah, he, he was definitely a smart Alex. Sometimes it would get him in trouble with, with teachers, you know, they'd be like, Bill, come on. <laughs> and you know, we, we, it was a small town, so we did party a little, but that really wasn't his thing at least when I knew him. I mean, I would always want to go smoke a little pot or drink and he would from time to time, but not, not a whole lot. It was a pretty wild time. You know, I mean, growing up in a, in a small town, you know, Bill was one of those people that would want to go do something, you know, and whereas most people were content, you know, when you live in a small Illinois town, you can drink beer or watch the corn grow. But, you know, he, you know, he had this ranchero and it was his pride and joy. It was uh, like baby blue colored, kind of like an El Camino, but it was a ranchero. And it was his pride and joy. He got it from his dad and he'd always, let's drive up to Chicago. Let's go, you know, Peoria, whatever, you know, let's get out of this small podunk town for a day, you know. So, he, he, you know, he always loved driving that car. He'd never let anybody touch it either. <laughs> Yeah. And, and to be honest with you, I mean, uh, you know, me and Bill kind of went separate ways the last year before he died. And it wasn't that we didn't get along. We just, you know, met new friends and I was hanging out more in Bloomington and he was hanging out, you know, still more in Leroy. So when I found out he died, I was crushed and, you know, I went to his funeral, but I really didn't know much about him the last year of his life. This is a consistent theme with all of Bill's high school friends. He was an incredibly nice guy, funny, a peacemaker, and a hard worker. But after high school, he began running with a different crowd. Jacob, Valerie, and Mike all told me that after graduation, Bill started hanging out more with a guy named Danny Hartley. And they all kind of lost touch. It's starting to seem like if I really want to get a good understanding of Bill's personality and tendencies at the time of the murder, I need to talk to Danny. So far, I haven't been able to track him down. I did get a hold of Sean. She was one of the people with Danny on the night of the murder when he visited Bill at the gas station, but she declined to interview or even speak to me about Bill once she realized what I wanted to talk to her about. That particular roadblock is what it is for now, although I was able to get in touch with someone else, someone who actually spoke to Bill during his shift at the Clark gas station that night. 
Chuck was working the same shift as Bill at another Clark station across town on the night that he was murdered. 91, I was 23, 24, working at Clark Gas Station, but I worked on the one on Main Street. Uh, I worked the same night Billy was murdered across town, and I had talked to Billy on the phone about 5 o'clock. I think it was about five. He had called me and asked me a question, something about some paperwork. Wait, so you actually talked to Bill on that day while he was working? It was like five o'clock. He called me. He had called me and asked me a question about some paperwork. There was something about some paperwork. I can't remember. It's been so long. It's, it was. It was. I know it had to do with Clark. You know, uh, paperwork we always had to fill out, stuff like that. And there was nothing, nothing significant about that call that you no, remember. He since January he had he had called me, he'd always call me for uh, questions, you know, questions about the register, questions about something, um, prices and gas. I don't know uh, how to change something, you know. That that's about all I knew of him, you know. And that was our whole our whole conversation back and forth was. And it would last a few minutes because we're both working. We'd have customers. So. Right. He seemed like a nice kid. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Kind of reminded me of me, like, in, in those days, uh, being I'm four years While old. While Chuck doesn't know a lot about Bill personally, he does add some valuable insights into the operations at the Bloomington Clark stations, as well as some insights into what it's like to be robbed at one of those stations. Two years after Bill was murdered, Chuck was held up while working a shift at another Clark station across town. If we had like a rush hour, they liked it if we just did the $60 drops. But like like after a 5 o'clock rush, like I've worked there for three years. And I always got my 5 o'clock rush because I worked either second or third shift. So I get that uh, 5 o'clock rush and I'd usually have, you know, quite a few hundred dollars in there. Sometimes five or six hundred and I wouldn't get a chance to drop it, but I'd have to take all that money, hurry up and count it in front of my customers, put it in a little envelope, turn around and drop it in that in the floor. And that night, I didn't get a chance because he came back right after my rush. I didn't know I was going to get robbed. I knew something was bad because I even told the first shift guy I didn't feel right about working that store. I did not like that store, that or the Empire in Linden 1 because it was such a dark street. And at night... There's hardly anybody. I grew up in that neighborhood right there down the street from Linden. My, my aunt lived there. I grew up on State Street, which is about four blocks away. My grandparents all my life, the high school and everything. And never was there a problem till that night with Bill, Bill Little. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's important for us to identify a timeline of events on the night of the murder along with our study of victimology. To quickly recap, Danny Martinez told police in 1999 that on Easter Sunday in 91, he was putting air in his tires at the Clark Station, which was right next door to his house. When he was done filling the tire with air, he began walking into the station, heard what he thought was his car backfiring, turned back to his car, and then back towards the station, and then back to his car, and then again back towards the station. And at that point, he came face to face with a man fleeing the scene. But back in 1991, he told the police a similar story with one exception. In the 91 version of events, he didn't come face to face with the killer. Rather, he said that out of the corner of his eyes, he saw a man wearing a dark colored baseball cap, a dark leather jacket, and blue jeans back out of the store and run around to the east side and towards an alley that ran behind the Clark building. In this original version, Martinez never came within 30 feet of the man fleeing the station. He only saw him at a glance. But according to Officer Pilo, neither of those stories can be true. Pilo witnessed Martinez going back and forth from his car to the gas station and had a clear view of the only entry door in the entire front side of the building. And he didn't see anyone in the parking lot except Martinez. Now, it's entirely possible that the officer didn't see the man running out of the door and quickly across the front of the building. We know from the dispatch tapes that Pila was reading off Martinez's license plate number over the radio, which would indicate that he was focusing on the car to his right, and maybe he didn't catch the fleeing suspect to his left. However, I do not think that it's at all possible that he could have missed Martinez physically running into someone. Not only did he describe Martinez's movements exactly as Danny himself recounted them, but it's also safe to assume that the statement Martinez gave on that very night is likely more accurate than the one he made eight years later after police had already made an arrest and they needed an eyewitness. Taking into account Danny Martinez's original crime night statement, let's put a pin in that description that he provided. A man with a dark colored baseball cap, a dark colored leather jacket and blue jeans fleeing the store at about 8.21 p.m. And then let's move on to the other witness that I mentioned last week, Gerardo Gutierrez. Gerardo Gutierrez, or Jerry, the name he prefers to go by, gave police a recorded statement in 1991, just like Martinez, eight years after the incident. But before we get to that, let's first look at his original statements. One given on the night of Bill's murder, and the next three days later. Keep in mind when you're listening to these statements, specifically the times mentioned, that police didn't have the register tape yet. They had no timeline and no suspects. At this point, they're just gathering information, and Gutierrez is trying to fill them in on everything that he knows. The circumstances are as follows. Gutierrez stopped by the station to put gas in his car. He went in to pay for the $3 he had pumped and noticed that Bill seemed very nervous. There was a strange man standing at the end of the counter. Not in front of the counter where customers normally stood to pay the clerk, but on the end, where the clerks would walk behind the counter. 
Later that night, he saw on the news that something had happened at the station, and he drove back down there to tell police what he had witnessed. What I'm about to read is the transcript of Gutierrez's interview from that night. Again, pay close attention to the times mentioned. Detective Crow asks, What can you tell me about a shooting at the Clark Station at Empire and Linden Streets last night? Gutierrez, I stopped at the gas station at about 8.05 p.m. and put $3 of gas in my car and went inside to pay the attendant. The attendant was not friendly like he usually is. This time he seemed nervous and upset and didn't say a word the whole time I was in there. He looked at me real strange and when I handed him the money, he almost dropped it. There was another man in the station at this time and he was standing at the end of the counter where you would go if you were going to go behind the counter where the attendant was standing. Detective Crow, can you describe this other man? Gutierrez, yes, he was a white male, about 23 or 24 years old, with shoulder-length, blondish-brownish hair. He had a mustache that was not thin or very thick, sort of medium, and he had what appeared to be two or three days' growth of facial hair, as if he hadn't shaved. He had about a one-inch scar on the right side of his chin and was wearing a small gold ball earring in his left ear. He had on a black baseball cap with a logo on the front that was in yellow or white. He was wearing an army green t-shirt under a black motorcycle-type jacket. The jacket was waist-length with a belt at the bottom and shoulder tabs. The jacket zipped at the front and had a flap that folded over starting at the left shoulder area and went down towards the waist. The subject kept his hands in his pockets but took them out once to pull out a box of Marlboro cigarettes and light one up. The subject was wearing blue jeans but I did not see his shoes. Neither one of them spoke while I was in the station, and I have seen the other guy before, but I can't remember where. Crow, what did you do after leaving the gas station? Gutierrez, I drove home and heard about the shooting on the radio, and I came back to the Clark station and talked to the police that was there. On the night of the murder, just a couple hours later, the next morning actually, Jerry Gutierrez recalled that he had been to the station at 8.05 p.m., We know from the register tape that the first no-sale was pressed at 8.06 p.m. Gutierrez says that he specifically pumped $3 in gas, but there is no $3 purchase on the tape. After reading this report, I'm now even more convinced that the first no-sale was in fact Bill taking Jerry's money, hastily, because he was already in distress at that point. Let's couple Jerry Gutierrez's statement with Danny Martinez's. Jerry described the man as wearing a black baseball cap with a yellow or white logo. Danny told police that he saw a man fleeing wearing a dark baseball cap. Jerry noticed the man was wearing a black leather waist-length motorcycle jacket. The man that Danny saw was wearing a dark leather waist-length jacket. And both men described the person that they saw as wearing blue jeans. It seems pretty obvious at this point that the two witnesses saw the same man. But what's really interesting is the fact that they saw the man 15 minutes apart. It's hard to imagine a circumstance where an armed robber would linger in the station for over 15 minutes if their only motive was the money in the cash register. In Gutierrez's second statement, four days later, we get a little more clarification on some key details. I mentioned last week that Jerry told police that Bill seemed nervous. His hands were shaking and he dropped Gutierrez's change. In reading this follow-up report, I see that that's true, but not in the way I thought it was true. Bill wasn't handing Jerry back change for his purchase. Gutierrez paid for his $3 in gas with $2 bills and four quarters. 
exact change. Bill dropped, or almost dropped, the four quarters. The discrepancy may be minor, but it further supports the idea that the no-sale press was Bill taking Jerry's money. It was a quick transaction, exact change, in and out. And according to Chuck, the attendant from the other station across town, there is no plausible reason to press that button under these circumstances. So was there there ever a reason to press that no-sale button in a normal day? No. We were told, well, yeah, there were some days of like uh, to either take money out or add money or like you need to change like your coins and stuff. You had to put coins in it. You hit the no sell button, put your coins in it and stuff like that. I know. And that's what I looked at my my fiance about. Cause she was listening. We had earphones on. We were at the dentist's office with our grandboys. But uh. She was listening to it too. She looked at me and she was like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, like last from what do you say, 7.30 to 8 o'clock, he hit it three times. Why? And I've never done that in three years I worked there. I wouldn't hit it no more than once in a month, you know, or twice. And that's what I didn't understand. Unless somebody was like uh, threatening him. Was someone threatening Bill? That seems to very likely be the case. The evidence seems to indicate that Jerry Gutierrez actually stood face-to-face with Bill's killer just a few moments before the offender pulled the trigger. He further clarifies the times of his purchase in his second interview. He said that he knows that he was in the gas station around 8 because he went straight home after and he remembers looking at the clock when he walked through the door. It was 8.12 p.m. He got a really good look at the man in the station with Bill. So Detective Crow had Jerry meet with a composite sketch artist. He created the composite that was spread throughout the Bloomington and Normal area in the days following Bill's murder. Gutierrez described a tall, thin man with a mustache, a scar on his chin, and a ball-bearing earring in his left ear. Currently, there is a man serving life in prison for Bill's murder, who in no way fits Jerry's description. Eight years later, Gutierrez recorded an interview with the new detective on the case, Detective Dan Katz. Well, you'll notice in a lot of these later interviews, the ones recorded after police had zeroed in on their suspect, is that Katz seems to be guiding the witnesses away from any statements that don't fit with their theory of the case. That I was there a little bit earlier. Uh, popping a little bit of gas, and I uh, saw this uh, person try again, kind of argue with uh, her inside, and uh, he was really kind of nervous. Uh, the curve, and uh, it's just something you know. I had a feeling that something was not right. I, I thought at first that was just a regular argument with a friend with friend or something like that, but uh, absolutely, that's what I was thinking back then. So you were at the gas station earlier that day, is that correct? That's correct. Why were you there? Uh, I was just pumping a little bit of gas to oh. try to make it what I was going. How much gas? Uh, approximately about around $3. After you went to the gas station, you put gas in your car. Yeah. You went inside to pay for gas. There's two people inside. Is yeah. that what you're saying? One is the person that you knew was as being the clerk, right? You talked to him before? Yes, that's correct. 
The other person, did you ever see that person before? No, never. Could you describe to me what that person was wearing? Well, the person I'm at right now is uh, just a tall, tall person, uh, brown. The person I remember right now, probably around six foot tall, six one, something like that, uh, wearing a leather black coat, uh, hardly, you know, jacket. And, uh, uh, it's pretty much what I remember right now that he had on, I don't know where to become, I think he had a blue jean. And, uh, but I do remember before I walked out the place like that, uh, yeah, I, I recall seeing uh, his face from the angle that I was walking out the place. And, uh, the thing that I, that I saw him, there was a skirt, a skirt. Uh, right or left uh, side of his face. Now, when you see a scar... Katz now is about to walk Jerry back away from the scar. It can't be a scar, because the man that he had arrested didn't have a scar on his chin. So now it becomes a fresh wound. Also in this portion of the interview, and I understand that's a bit difficult to hear, but Gutierrez says that he's never seen the man in the station before. But in 1991... The day after the murder, he says that he did recognize him from somewhere, but he couldn't recall where. There's also no mention of the earring in this statement. Another interesting difference from one statement to the next. The man that's sitting in prison right now has never had his ears pierced, and therefore could not have been wearing an earring on the night Bill was killed. Back in 91, Gutierrez was certain about the time of his gas purchase, 8.05 p.m. But in this interview, as detectives and prosecutors are preparing for trial, the time shifts back to earlier in the evening. Is this something that you just noticed, like it was a fresh cut or something? Uh, yeah, that was pretty fucked up. Uh, so it was, like, it was like a new uh, Yeah, it's pretty injury. much. Yeah, like a new injury. Yeah. Uh, you can tell, you know, when it's an old yeah. injury, when it's past, when it's injured. But the way I describe it, that I saw that, because I was not really far away from that, from this person. I was just uh, walking out the place. This place, they were like, real sure. Yeah. Now, when you were inside, I'm going to try and help you, because it's been nine years. When you walk in the door, there's a counter on your left. And that's where... Uh, the attendant stood behind to take the money. That's correct. Where was this other person you saw? Where was he in relationship uh, to the counter? Yeah, he was kind of uh, all pushed up to the to the end of the counter, to the, all the way to the inside. Um, so he was near the end of the counter, is that what you're saying? Yeah, he was all the way kind of to the inside, the farthest inside he can, he can stay. Now, when you got there, you put gas in your car. Was there any other cars in the lot? Uh, honest, no, I don't really recall any, any other vehicle in the area. Okay. So there's no cars in the lot. About what time was it that you put gas in your car? Around 7 o'clock. Around maybe right after or probably a few minutes before, but around 7 o'clock. Is there any reason why that sticks up in your mind that around seven o'clock time? Uh, 
No, 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 no specific. It's just uh, the time that I recall that uh, was what it was. Not a, nothing special. Nothing. By this date, Gutierrez thinks that he was in the station around 7 p.m., with no anchor or significant event to pinpoint that time. And by the time trial rolled around, prosecutors used this uncertainty to actually push Jerry's gas purchase back until much earlier in the day, claiming that he must have been mistaken about the time because the only $3 gas purchase on the register tape occurred much earlier in the afternoon, well before the sun went down. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully, it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. There's another important detail in Gutierrez's interview. He says that there was no other vehicle in the parking lot when he encountered the strange man in the station. There was also no other cars in the parking lot when Danny Martinez was putting air in his tire or when Officer Pilo approached the scene. And Martinez saw the man fleeing the station on foot. Further evidence that Danny and Jerry likely saw the same man. So let's take another look at the timeline between the two events. Gutierrez witnessing the scarred man in the station with Bill and Martinez's report of seeing a man exiting the station. There's a 15-minute gap between the two sightings, and the events that occurred during that time, blended with our assessment of Bill's victimology, should bring us a little closer to figuring out what happened that night, and hopefully lead us closer to figuring out who killed Bill Little. At 8.05 p.m., we have our last legitimate purchase on the register tape, $2.45 for a pack of cigarettes and a can of soda. Then, at 8.06, we see our first no-sale. Now, there's a 60-second gap between those two events, and it's possible that the person who made the 8.05 purchase was gone by the time Gutierrez got there, but I doubt it. The no-sale button was pressed at 8.06. And if that no-sale was, as I've been theorizing, Jerry actually paying for his $3 in gas, that means that Jerry had been there for a few minutes before that. Remember, it's 1991 in the Midwest. A $3 gas purchase means that around six gallons of gas was pumped. And then Jerry had to walk into the station to hand bill the money. Gutierrez had to have been there when that 805 purchase was made, which would seem to indicate that if the scarred man inside was Bill's killer, he had began his encounter with Little by actually making a purchase. Another oddity if the theory is that this was a simple robbery gone bad. What robber first pays for items and then holds up the store? Six minutes pass by before we see the second no-sale pressed on the register at 8.12. Then another no-sale three minutes later at 8.15. 
And 60 seconds after that, the silent alarm button is pressed. So what's happening when Bill triggered that alarm? Had he already been shot at that point? Is that what triggered the offender to shoot him? It was no easy task to press that button, according to Chuck. He actually considered doing so when he was robbed in 1993. At the store I worked at, yes. I don't know about that one on Linden Empire. He must have had easy access to it. But the one on Main Street that I worked on, uh, yeah, I couldn't reach it. It was, it was like the register picture of the counter and you got the register and I'm standing in front of it. If I were to just reach down and, and touch it, it, it wasn't there. You had to reach a good maybe... Two foot away, foot away maybe. So you couldn't really just nonchalantly reach down and push it? No, because he would have attacked me at that time. Mm -hmm. What did they teach you about as far as like if you were robbed, did they tell you to try to keep the money back or did they tell you just give them the money, hit the alarm? Did they train you on that at all? It wasn't real no training. They just said uh, hit the robbery button and just keep your – keep your uh, register uh with not a lot of money in it it seems like bill would have had to make a pretty deliberate movement in order to trigger the alarm but i don't think the evidence in its entirety is telling us that bill was shot either before or as a result of him hitting the alarm by the time he pressed the button the no sale button had been pressed twice one of those times in the minute just before the alert was sent out I think that Bill may have taken advantage of the offender being distracted in that moment to raise the alarm. By that point, the man Gutierrez had described had been in the station for at least 10 minutes. And it was another 5 minutes before Martinez heard what he believed to be backfires from his car. I think that it is entirely plausible to consider that Bill was actually shot while Officer Pilo was across the street. And it could have been the sound of the approaching sirens that caused the offender to fire his gun. So the question we have to ask ourselves takes us right back to victimology. If Gutierrez and Martinez saw the same man, then why did that man spend 15 minutes in the station with Bill before he killed him? Or at least, why did he spend 10 minutes in there before getting the money out of the drawer? What was Bill doing during that time? We believe Gutierrez then Bill was not only very nervous, but was also cooperating with his attacker. Jerry said that Bill never said a word and didn't make any attempt to indicate that he was being threatened. So why didn't the offender just take the money and leave at, say, 8.07? Would Bill have fought for the money in the register? I mean, I can't imagine anybody would want to single out Bill to hurt him because Bill was such a great guy to, to be around. I mean, he really was. I mean, we, we were friends, so we argued from time to time about small stuff, but, you know, never anything serious. He would always diffuse the situation instead of escalating it, you know. That, that's the way he was in high school. You know, we, me and him got a, a job together because our grades were somewhat good. Our, my junior year, I believe it was, or it might have been my senior year. But we got into this program where we could... Uh, take off two hours early from school and go work at this truck stop in Bloomington. And so we really got close then because we, you know, went to school and then worked together. And, and, uh, you know, he, it's, it's a restaurant, you know, people complain about this, that, and the other. And Bill was always fast to diffuse when a waitress gets mad or whatever, you know, or for an unruly customer, you know, he was just, 
he could get them he could get you to smile you know he he was good that way that's the thing that puzzles me about the crime scene is from what i'm hearing and and, and you might have a little better insight into it he seems like the kind of guy that you know someone's holding him up and pointing a gun at him taking the money that he would you know he might try to calm him down and then and then would give him, i can't i can't see him fighting for the gas station's no. money no, me either. And I heard it was only like forty bucks they got. Yeah, I think it was like it was like ninety seven dollars or something. Okay, so it was a little bit more, but yeah, I mean, I I can't. I mean, I wasn't there, so I don't know for sure. But I honestly can't believe that Bill would try to fight for the gas station's money. He would have just said, "Here you go, man." You know, right? And that that's what makes me feel like there's got to be there's got to be more going on there. I mean, if some. Why, if somebody's you know robbing a gas station for ninety bucks, do they then turn around and, and commit a murder? No, especially in Bloomington. I mean, we. I mean, there was one famous murder before this. He uh, killed his whole family. You know, I think that was the only other major crime Bloomington had had like this. And at least you know he had the Hendricks murder had a, somewhat of a motive. You know, he was uh, cheating on his wife or something like that, if I remember right, and trying to cover his tracks. But yeah, Bill. It's just a senseless murder. I, I can't for the wife. I mean, I didn't know Bill in the last year of his life that well, so I can't say who he was hanging out with. So, I mean, if that's where you're kind of going with this. I mean, you may want to try and find someone who knew him a little better in the last year of his life because the Bill I knew wouldn't have gotten to a confrontation over 90 bucks. Nineteen ninety high school bill, future farmers of America bill, wouldn't have fought an armed man over ninety dollars of the gas station's money. But things may have changed in the years following graduation. Bill left most of his high school friends behind and started hanging out with a new crowd. I need to talk to Bill's new friends to better understand his victimology. I need to find Danny Hartley. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 7 logo was created by me, with assistance from Zach Weaver and Shane Yoder. All of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Pam Maples, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to Patreon.com slash TruthAndJustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. 
If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com or you can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at TruthJusticePod and my personal Twitter handle is at BobRuffTruth. And you can even follow Mike at MBussing89. For more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at TruthJusticePod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. I wear a few different hats as a CFO. You know, sometimes it's referred to as chief fixing officer. (laughs) Wherever there's a fire in the business, um, you know, I'm often there first. Whatever hats CFOs like Imran need to wear, Sage's tools and insights can make sure they fit. Sage, helping business flow.